Hi, everybody. This is your cousin, Brucey. And you are about to go on an excursion following your dream with our host, Robert Miller, a great podcast. And I'm looking forward to listening to I Love to Follow My Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 199 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I have the distinct honor to welcome as my guest today, Tony Orlando, one of the true giants of the entertainment business. Here are just a few of his accomplishments. He's had five number one singles, 19 top 40 hits, four gold albums. He's received the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's one of Billboard's 100 greatest artists of all time. He's one of the top 10 biggest record-selling artists of all time. He's a three-time winner of the American Music Awards, a two-time winner of the People's Choice Awards. Is there anything he hasn't done or won? I don't know. I can't think of anything. And in the middle of this episode, we are going to do a song fest, which I love to do with all my musician guests, where we're going to play a handful of Tony's greatest hits, and we're going to talk about them, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And, you know, I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always want to try and make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I thought it was easy because the song that I'm featuring is called New York City Groove. Because Tony was born in New York City and I think of him as a New York City kind of guy. So, Tony Orlando, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. May I make a correction for you? I did not win the Congressional Medal of Honor. And that would really, really put a damper on those guys who put their life on the line. I uh -oh. got the Congressional Medal of Honor Bob Hope Best of Entertainment Award from the Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. I, I apologize see. if it reads that way. <laughs> okay, you know what? My fault, my bad. But in my mind, you're a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. So, oh, you know, you know, those guys who, who received that honor. I have reunion with them and hosted many of their dinners, you know, Robert. My life's work has been entertaining people, but because I'm an entertainer, my life's work, and mostly what I'm proud of, is the work I've done with veterans. So my association with the Congressional Medal of Honor Society and and the foundation has been one that has taught me that when people put their name on the line, on that line that says, yes, I'm willing to go to war for you, I am joining the armed forces, is the moment they become heroes. Because what they're saying is they're willing to die for you and me and our children, right? Yep. Well, the Congressional Medal of Honor recipients not only did that, but if you read each story of those particular recipients, like there's a guy named Varga, okay? And Varga ran out in the middle of a field in, in, in uh, Vietnam 
and picked up his buddies' bodies and ran them back so that they would be able to go home to their families. While doing mm. that, he was shooting at the enemy by himself. Remarkable. He, he grabbed limbs and brought them back so they could be sewn back on to that particular buddy of his. It's unbelievable the stories that go behind the, what you call the backstory, the Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. So really, they're the only person in the military that the President of the United States must, must, by law, salute. Really? Never heard of that before. The President has to stop what he's doing when he comes across and meets a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. He must salute them. Fabulous to learn that. I appreciate that. Yeah. How did you get involved with uh, veterans then? How did that come about? Well, you know, 1973 came a song called Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Okay, so in 1973, I was asked to come to the Cotton Bowl by Bob Hope to welcome home our POWs from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. So there were 70,000 people there. The Yellow Ribbon song was only out about a month. Mm. And I go out and 500 of those POWs are sitting on the 50-yard line. And they're singing this chorus with me. Now, these guys, as you know, at the Hanoi Hilton were tortured terribly. And 70,000 Texans were singing that song with them. Well, I met them after the show. And they changed my life. And I said to myself, as long as God blesses me with a career, where I could maybe raise money or do something on behalf of veterans. And I've done so since 1973. In fact, I've reunion with those POWs every single year since 1973. And this coming year will be their 50th year homecoming and the 50th year of Yellow Ribbon, by the way. And I'm going to host their homecoming celebration 50 years later at the Nixon Library. That's fabulous. We're going to play Tie a Yellow Ribbon, of course, during the Songfest. But for anybody that didn't live through that era, when you guys recorded that song and it became such a massive hit, it, it became a symbol with the yellow ribbons tied around trees for things like the veterans coming home from Vietnam. And it was an, a national symbol, probably an international symbol. Remarkable. You're right, because I didn't write it. It was written by Larry Brown and Irwin Levine. And I had no idea on a rainy afternoon when I recorded that song that it would become what it has become. Remember, after uh, that particular time at the Cotton Bowl, welcoming home our POWs, when it really found a significance in this country as a symbol was welcoming home our Iranian hostages after 444 days held in Iran. They came home to yellow ribbons, not only on the soup for the Super Bowl around the Astrodome, but on the space shuttle, they were tied yellow ribbons to welcome home those Iranian hostages that were also held captive for 444 days. They came home in 1980. And then, of course, Desert Storm, it was the significant symbol for the 100-day war of our veterans that when they came home, the yellow ribbon was their literal symbol. And right now, as you and I speak, in Hong Kong, if you watch the news, you'll see there are people fighting for their democracy in Hong Kong. And what do you think they're playing as their theme song, the people of Hong Kong, to the Chinese government? And that is Yellow Ribbon, the very Yellow Ribbon that we all know. So the guys who wrote that song 
you know, might be shaking their heads every day going, we had no idea that this song would be a symbol of hope, homecoming in the American way. Yep, I'm sure you're right. So when they brought it to you, what were you thinking at the time about that song? I mean, you couldn't know what it would become. So I'm just curious what went through your mind as the artist at that time. I didn't want to cut it. <laughs> now, you often hear that about a lot of things with performers, you know. Uh -huh. On my radio show uh, in New York, when I asked Garth Brooks or I asked uh, uh, Lionel Richie about why did, you, why did you turn down this movie or this song, I didn't want to cut it because I thought the title, Tie Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree, was gimmicky. I thought it was a gimmick. And I just come off Knock Three Times, which was the biggest seller I've ever had, even bigger than Yellow Ribbon, actually, and by the same writers, by the way. That sold four million copies in its initial release just in the United States. So when Yellow Ribbon came to me, I knew it was going to be a hit. I knew it was a hit song. But I didn't want to be identified with another gimmicky, what I thought was, you know, tie yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, really? You know, and I was wrong. And God blessed me. And he put me behind that microphone. And by the way, this is the only song I've ever recorded, this is the truth, ever, and did it in one take. Wow. Ever. Never, never did that before. So tell me, who was it that convinced you to do it? my record producer, and actually it was a bargaining chip for me because I was doing an album and the two girls, Dawn, Telma Hopkins and Joyce Vincent, who were of course in the group, I wanted them to have a chance to show their talent. I wanted them to have lead vocals, not just doing oohs and ahs behind me. And so I said to Hank, I'll tell you what, I'll record this as long as you allow me to have the girls do some solos on the album. So I bargained with him and got the deal made. And so Yellow Ribbon was the first bargaining chip. And little did I know it would become the song. It would be, become my, you know, Mac the Knight, my, my, my signature song, as they put it, as they say. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how things work out that way. You can't predict them in advance. You can maybe hope for them, but life just takes a certain path. And for you, right, you're always going to be identified with that song. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Nothing wrong with that. I'm proud of it. Are you kidding? I know. But there are, there are some people that get identified with a certain song, and they never loved the song, or they were forced to do it. Oh, no, and... I love the song. I, and I, I even it. thought it was a hit. I just didn't want it to be... I, I didn't want to go in after Knock Three Times, which was considered a kind of bubblegum, gimmicky idea song and it really wasn't but it no they thought of it that way because we were coming through a period of time where heavy rock and heavy metal was finding its home so i wanted to try and get more of the r&b side of us it wasn't that i had any bad feelings for the song i knew that song was a hit i just didn't think it was going to be a single for me and so i was trying to push it away but then i used it as a bargaining chip and i got best of both worlds i got the hit Plus, I got the girls to do their solos, which, by the way, they're amazingly talented. Yep. You won twice on that one, then. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. My new single, All of the Time, is a playful, whimsical love song. It's light and airy and exudes the happiness and joy of being in love. The reviewers love it, too. 
Melody Maker has given it five stars and calls it pure bliss, an intimate sound with abundant melodic riches. Pop Icon also gave it five stars and called it ecstasy. You can stream all of the time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode, and you can download it from the pgsstore.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice review too, if you're so inclined. You can do all of that and check out all of our episodes by visiting our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right. You know what? We're going a little out of order, but I want to go to that song fest thing because that portion is going to lead into all these songs that we're talking about. Now, the first one I have on my list, I think was the first song that you did and you brought the Dawn ladies in and I'm talking about Candida. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. Yeah. Trying hard to win me first prize. Oh, my Candida. We could make it together. The further from here, girl, the better. Where the air is fresh and clean. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I was working for Clive Davis at the time. I was running the music division for him. For four years, I was uh, general manager, then vice president of CBS Music. Were you singing at the same time or were you just doing that job? No, I had four years with him. But what happened was the producer of Candida, who was, you remember the tokens, of course, right? Tonight, okay. So he was one of the tokens. His name was Hank Medris. He came to my office, a longtime friend, and said, Tony, I'm broke. I need to pay my bills. I want to play your song, a record that I produced. You think you can get me an advance of $3,000? So I said, play the song for me. So he plays the song for me. I says, Hank, I think it's a hit record. But I said, we're not going that way here at CBS. We're going more for the album type artist, not the singles artist. Let me bring you over to Bell Records, which eventually became Arista. Let me bring you to them and see if they'll buy it. I did, brought it to them. There was a lead singer on there that they didn't feel was right. Not that he was bad, it just didn't feel was right. So they said, Tony, if you get the right lead singer, we'll give you the $3,000 for Hank. So I run back to Hank and I said, Hank, I got a deal for you, but you got to change the lead singer. So he looks at me and goes, you do it. I said, Hank, I can't do it. I work for Clive Day. I can't do that. He said, Tony, I'm broke. Now, you used to do, meaning me, do all the demos for Carol King when she started, right? I said, yeah. So you did all the drifter stuff, right? Like up on the roof. I said, yes. He goes, well, isn't this in that genre? I said, yes. He said, would you put your voice vocal on it for me, please? I said, Hank, I'll tell you what. As long as you don't name it Tony Orlando and you don't name it, have anything to do with me, I'll be glad to put my voice on it tonight. 
We got one hour. So I went in the studio. I said, if we're successful in an hour, we got it. So here's how we cut Candida. I said, okay, what's the first line? And the producer would say, stars won't come out if they know the show are about. Okay, hold it, hold it. Stars won't come out. Okay, now play the track and I'll sing it to that. Da, 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 da. Here I come. Stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Stop tape. What's the next line? Because <laughs> they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. Because they couldn't match the glow. Okay, I got it. Now, the first voice that I put down, I would hear in my ear, like your earphones are on right now. Uh-huh. Then he would punch me in to sing the second line. We did that song one line at a time, and we made the hour. What a great story. Yeah, so why did he come up with the name Dawn? He was very clever. Hank Medris was. The head of promotion's daughter, Steve Wax's daughter's name was Dawn. So he figured if he would do that, Steve would promote the record even more, which he did, okay? Therefore, we got every station playing Candida in the country. What happens to Tony? What do I do? I hear on WABC, your friend and my cousin Lucy, number one, Candida by Dawn. I'm not telling anybody, man. I don't want to lose my job, right? So Hank comes to me and he says, you want to do the follow-up? I said, Hank, please. By the way, I have no contract, no money deal, not a cent paid to me for this, okay? Okay. So I'm not, I did this a favor. Whatever you pay me, you pay me, you know, down the line. So he says, knock three times. I said, well, I'll cut that. I said, because no one's going to buy a record talking about a guy knocking on the ceiling. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The only place they have pipes to knock on is Brooklyn. You'll be number one in Brooklyn. That's about it. So I go in, I cut knock three times, and it becomes a four million selling record. Oh, my darling, knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. Two records in a row, Robert, number one. Two records in a row. Now I'm sitting there at my desk, vice president, 24 years old. I'm thinking, do I follow the dream at the name of your show? Do Do I go after the dream? Yes. Yes, Tony, you go after the dream. Two number one records in a row God gives you, and you're going to sit behind this desk? So I go to Clive Davis, and I said, Clive, I have to quit. And he looks at me and goes, why? Because you're Dawn? I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You <laughs> know knew. I'm Dawn? He says, yeah, the whole business knows you're Dawn. Go ahead. <laughs> and this was his words. You go follow your dream, Tony. And if it doesn't happen, you can always come home. Wow. What a great story. What a great story. That's funny. He knew the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So you went out at that point, And uh, after Knock Three Times, you said that's when Tire Yellow Ribbon came out, right? Well, there were, there were a couple of songs after that that kind of made it, but they weren't as big a record. So people thought they weren't successful. And finally came Yellow Ribbon. And the writers came to the office and played me Yellow Ribbon. And the rest is history, really. One time. 
Quite a remarkable story, really. I mean, and at this, I'm sure you must sing it every time you're on stage. Am I correct? And you know, here's the greatness of it all. Yes, it's provided a wonderful career for me. I'm in my 62nd year in show business. Good for you. you know, my first hit record was in 1961 with Carol King. It's called Halfway to Paradise. And then again, 1962, Bless You, written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. All four of them are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, by the way. Every time I face the world, I just had to cry. I stood alone with no love of my own, but then you have been by, oh, darling. Bless you, bless every breath that you take. And so it's been 62 years of an incredible journey for me. But the greatest thing about Yellow Ribbon is that it's allowed me to raise hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of veterans. That's the glory of it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, given everything you said before, I can understand how you feel that way. You know, you, you reminded me of a funny story because you work for Carol King. James Taylor, of course, was good friends with Carol King. And I remember him telling a story when I saw him in concert one time about how he asked Carol King if he could record You've Got a Friend, which she had just written before she was going to record it. And she said, yeah, go ahead and do it. He said, little did I know when I was doing that, that I was going to sing that song every day for the rest of my life. Okay. But he, he doesn't regret it, of course, because it's such a wonderful song. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I represented James Taylor's music. When you were doing the Clive Davis thing? Yeah, he was signed to me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Tell us that story. I want to hear that. Well, you know the song Fire and Rain, right? Of course. So you know when the line comes, sweet dreams of flying machines and pieces on the ground. Yeah. You do know what that means, right? Well, he had the band Flying Machine. Right. So you're one of the few people that know that history. And the group broke up, right? Right. So they were signed as the Flying Machine to April Blackwood Music. So I had all of his music in my mind. I'm going to Carolina all that stuff, okay? So I represented James. So I get this call from Apple Records and they tell me that James is coming out with an album and they just want to inform me and they send me the list and on the list of songs, it says McCartney Lennon Music. So I call them back and I said, listen, I know John, I know Paul very well. I got bad news for them. I said, they don't have the publishing on James Taylor. We do. So Clive said, go to, go to London, to Apple Records. Now remember, 
that album was going to be the first album ever released on Apple. Yeah. Not the Beatles, but James yeah. Taylor. Okay. So I go to London and I never forget this. I walk into Apple Records and there's George Harrison getting ready. He's getting fitted for a suit and we've known each other. So I go, George, he goes, what are you doing here? I said, I hate to tell you. He said, why? I said, I'm here to tell them inside that James doesn't, uh, Leonard McCartney's music doesn't. He says, we don't publish it? He goes, I go, no. He goes to the, to the tailor. He goes, forget me. I'm out of here. He knew there was going to be some explosion going on, right? So I went in, and that was my moment of fame with Clive because I got the publishing to be changed back to us on every one of those first albums, okay? So then when James cut Sweet Baby James, I'm talking to um, the people at Warner Brothers. Right. And I said to Peter Asher, I said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I know that James Taylor's album, after hearing Sweet Baby James, is going to go triple platinum, and it did. I said, I'm going to revert all the copyrights back to him in three years. So all the copyrights that James wrote of all of his songs reverted back to him after three years. Isn't that something? So Clive and the company earned much, a lot of money on Sweet Baby James because it was a huge hit. But I, I told James that story, and, uh, and he was so wonderfully at the Mohegan Sun. He said, I didn't realize, Tony, that that's what happened. So I worked very closely with Fire and Rain and all of James's music. In fact, the first Dawn album, if you look at the first Dawn album, remember what I said now, I did it as a favor, right? Right. And I said that Clive Davis said he knew it was me, right? Uh-huh. He said, now, if you're going to leave us, you got to do me one favor. You owe it to me, Clive says. Well, I said, what's that, Clive? He says, in the next album, in the new album, you got to put six April Blackwood songs in. And all of the six were James Taylor songs. <laughs> so in the first album, you hear me paying back to Clive by doing James's out uh, music in our album. Now that's a backstory, okay? Yeah, I love it. I love yeah. it. I got to tell you a quick James Taylor story from me. I was in Boston. This is in the late '60s, and I went into this little dump in Kenmore Square. It was called the Psychedelic Supermarket. Okay, it was like a bomb shelter, and it was just one uh, night during the week, and there were maybe three people in the place and there was a kid on a stool playing guitar and it was James Taylor. This was before Sweet Baby James came out and we stayed there for about two hours. Well, then that was during the time he was with Apple. Well, it was just before Sweet Baby James came out. I can't place it exactly. Well, before Sweet Baby James, he had In My Mind of Going to Carolina. He had those hit records, as you know. And so it must have been on that first uh, Apple album. Right. It was probably between Apple and the Warner Brothers release. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah talking exactly. About. Yep. Uh -huh. But the funny thing was, again, he's playing for, for three of us for two hours and he was magnificent. The next time I see him, it's a week later in the, at the bitter, bitter end in New York City. And then Sweet Baby James comes out. And the next time I see him, it's, you know, thousands of people. I'll tell you a funny story about Carol, though. Not funny, but interesting. So when I signed with Donnie Kirshner, I was 16 years old. Carol was 18 years old. Carol had not had a hit record yet with her husband, Jerry Balfour. 
I had not had a hit record yet. So I'm signed to the company and, and Donnie says to the sec his secretary, hey, bring in Carol and Jerry. I want them to meet this young singer, Tony Orlando. So Carol and Jerry come in and he says, play, play up. We'll used to love me tomorrow for Tony. It's a great new song you wrote. So he, she plays me, we'll used to love me tomorrow before it was cut by the Shirelles. So he says, Carol, that's gonna to be Tony's first record. I said, wow, really? That's gonna be my first record? Because I was the first pop artist to sign to Epic, to Epic Records. Before that, they didn't have any pop artists, 1961. Wow. So he says, go to Brooklyn on Brown Street every weekend and work with Carol. So I would go out to Brooklyn and I would sit at the house and we would sit and she would play me halfway to paradise. What would become my hits? So I go into the studio and I cut 11 songs, nine of them she arranged. She never had arranged a record before in her life. She never, she never even knew how to arrange for strings. She went to the library before, this is the God's truth, to learn how to write for strings. Now remember, she's a Juilliard graduate. This is a brilliant musician, Carol King. So we sit down and we play the songs I'm gonna cut. I cut Will You Love Me Tomorrow. Donnie comes in and he says, Tony, we can't put this out as a single. I said, why is that? It's a girl song. I said, what? It's a girl's lyric. I said, how is that? What do you mean? He goes, tonight with words unspoken. You say that I'm the only one, but will my heart be broken when the night meets the morning sun? Is this a, 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 a moment's pleasure or just a moment's treasure? Can I believe the magic of your eyes? Will you still love me tomorrow? No 16-year-old boy says that to a girl. <laughs> only a girl says that to a boy. You only want me for one thing. That's the thing. You cannot record this song. It broke my heart. So they put out Halfway to Paradise, the Shirelles cut, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? And the two of us were out at the same time. And that was the beginning of Carol King's career. That's another great story. Love it. Okay. This doesn't end. I love this. So did you cut Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Did you ever actually record it? Yeah, yeah. It's in the, it's in, if you go to YouTube and you, you see uh, Tony Orlando, you'll, and, and, you'll, and the background singers, by the way, are a group called The Cookies, which worked with, with her. They eventually cut Chains with her. And Carol. So Carol was also the background singer on those records. Is this a lasting treasure Or just a moment's pleasure Can I believe the magic of your size Will you still love me Tomorrow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Guess who signed Ron Dante? <laughs> I think I'm looking at him, huh? Guess who brought Ron Dante to Don Kirshner? Guess who it was? I want to take a wild guess. Tony Orlando? Yep. <laughs> and the first song he ever wrote was with me was called Mr. Tear. Another bad song that we wrote together. But he was my, I, I got him signed for $50 a week with Kirshner. And guess who signed Barry Manilow? Yes, I did read that. That was you, right? Yeah. 
Was this when he was playing with Bette Midler? Before. Before. This was when he was at a drugstore playing piano. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story about that. You got a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still low, okay? So there's a place on 52nd Street called Escal's Coffee Shop. Escal's Coffee Shop. And right in the middle of the block between 7th and 6th Avenue. Okay. Bell Records was on the corner of 57th and 7th Avenue. So I get Barry signed to Bell Records and I produce two records with him that did, so, did, did it okay. So he comes to me and he says, hey, can you get Bet signed? I said, I think so. He's, and the reason I said I think so is because I had Candida, knocked three times, four million sellers, six million records in two records. I had some power at Bell, right? Right? Yep. So I said, meet me at Escal's Coffee Shop tomorrow morning, the day after Bet does The Tonight Show. Now, she had not recorded records. She was this kind of Broadway actress, you know. So I called the head of the record company and said, listen, watch Bette Midler, that's her name, tonight on The Tonight Show. You're going to love her. I say to Bette, Bette, sing your ass off now because I got the label watching tonight. Meet you in the morning. I meet her and Barry. Now, at Escal's Coffee Shop, no one knew who Barry Manilow was. No one knew who Bette Midler was. And no one knew who Tony Orlando was because I was out there as Dawn. They didn't know me, right? So it was the three of us unknowns in this coffee shop. She was hoping that I would get her her first record contract, okay? I go up, I say, okay, Bet, we finish breakfast. I'll be right back. I'll have a contract for you when I come back. Oh, great, great, great. I go upstairs and the head of the company, Larry Utah, says to me, I watched the show last night. I can't sign her. I said, what? She was incredible. He goes, she's a kooky, you know, Dodie Burns, Jody, whatever her name is, Dodie Goodman. She says, she's a, she's a kooky chick. She says, she ain't a star. I said, you're turning me down? Yeah. I have to go back now and tell Bette Midler. So I go back to Escal's Coffee Shop. Now, Barry's sign, he's already in. I had Dawn, had my hits already, right? right. I got to go back and say, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna soft soak soak this to you, Bet. This is what he said to me. He said you were just another Doty Goodman. She goes. He said what? He said he said you were just another Doty Goodman. From now on, I'm a combination of Sophie Tucker and Janis Joplin. She got up and walked out of there with her shoe. You know, a typical walk. Bet Little walked out of that door into Megastar. Yep. And if you look at those two aspects of her career, she is a Janis Joplin and she was a Sophie Tucker. She was a force of nature back then, for sure. Those two people that she used as a as a an idea to make this personality who she was, look what she did. She did the rose. Yep. which was basically Janis Joplin, the movie The Rose. And of course, her bodiness was Sophie Tucker. So that's who she became. And named her daughter Sophie after Sophie Tucker. 
<laughs> interesting. So interesting. Years later, I see Bet. We went to uh, Anita Baker concert in New York and L.A. And uh, she sees me and I go, uh, Bet, do you remember? She goes, don't even go there. <laughs> she didn't even want to talk about it. It was bothering her to that very day, even though she became the great Ben Midler, you know. <laughs> yeah, you would think she'd forget about it, but no, that's the kind of thing that sticks in your craw. Yeah, yeah. All right, I got another record of yours that we uh, we haven't spoken about yet, and that's He Don't Love You Like I Love You. Give us a little story on that one. Okay, you know who Faye Dunaway is, right? Of course. And you know Peter Wolf, right? Jay Giles Band, right? From Boston, right? Yeah. So I'm co-hosting a little bit of the Golden Globe Awards. And we go to we go to commercial. And I'm in the hallway. I go to the bathroom. I'm in the hallway. And I see Peter and Faye in the hallway. He went out for a smoke or something, yeah? And he says, hey, Tony, oh, Tony, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Do you know Faye? I said, no, I'm a big admirer, fan, great actress. He says, actress, she knows every doo-wop record ever made. I said, what? Yeah. Go ahead. She'll even tell you the serial number. This is the truth. I go, okay, Faye, come go with me. She goes, Dell Vikings, serial number 6247452, red and black label. <laughs> Now, I don't know if she's right, right? I'm thinking she made up these numbers. Turned out she was right. I said, oh, my gosh. She said, you know what song you should cut? You should cut the Jerry Butler song, He Will Break Your Heart. You know the song, He Don't Love? I said, yeah. you know what, Faye? Faye, you might be right. So I go home. I call my producer, and I said, hey, on the next session, I want to do He Will Break Your Heart. But I want to change the title to He Don't Love You Like I Love You. Because even though Jerry's record was brilliant and to this day my favorite, He Will Break Your Heart is never even mentioned in the song. But He Don't Love You Like I Love You is the hook all the way through the record. So he says, well, why don't you call Curtis Mayfield and see if it's okay with him because he wrote it. So I called Curtis Mayfield. I said, Curtis, now understand the Tony Orlando and Dawn show was at 35 million people every Wednesday night. It was a pretty strong audience we had, right? Wow. So I go, I'd like to cut, he will break your heart, Curtis. Really? Yeah, yeah, but wait, wait. Will you allow me to change the title to he don't love you like I love you? You never say that in Jerry's record. He goes, well, let me ask you a couple of questions before I say anything. Number one, is this being considered for a single? I said, yes, sir. He said, are you cutting it with Dawn? I said, yes, sir. Do you still have your television show? I said, yes, sir. 
Because in that case, I don't care if you change the name to Old McDonald Had a Farm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we did. We changed the word to He Don't Love You Like I Love You. Another great story. By the way, it went to number one. And Jerry's record, which I think is the better record, quite frankly, than our record, the original song, never went to number one. But that change, I really believe that that change of title. And you know why I asked Kurt? This is, I've never said this publicly, but I'm going to tell you. Okay. Okay. I said, why didn't you, why didn't you call it He Don't Love You Like I Love You, Curtis? He said, well, I didn't want to sound like an illiterate black man. I said, what? He said, yeah, I felt it was improper language. It's he doesn't love you like I love you. And I didn't want anybody to think that I didn't know that. As a black man, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't know that mm. it was improper to say he don't love you. It's he doesn't love you like I love you. Not he don't love you. So I didn't want, I didn't want to use that. So I changed, I, I, I changed it to what the story was about. He will break your heart. Because he doesn't love you like I love you. He doesn't love you. That's why he changed. He was so worried about someone thinking he was dumb because he was black. Can you imagine? No. Can you imagine? I can't imagine it. But also, he don't. It's so much better than he doesn't. Okay. Right. That was perfect. It sings better. And he was right to do it. But in his mind, right. he didn't want to, you know. Oh, I felt I felt such love for him when he said that. I hugged him. I really hugged him. He he was an amazing talent, Curtis Mayfield. Oh my God. Absolutely. You know, you're reminding me also how many songs had the word ain't in the title. Yeah. Because that was just a contraction that worked. Okay. But maybe a white man wrote it. At that time, a black man writing it, maybe in his mind, he didn't want to portray being ignorant. That was what he said to me. I'm not yeah, making I it hear up. You. That was what he said to me. It broke my heart, you know. And, you know, he knew that we were the first multiracial group to ever have a primetime television show. Tony Lando and Dawn were the first, never one before. And by the way, never one since. Yeah. So you, you had, you told me, 35 million viewers in a typical yeah. week. I mean, you don't hear numbers like that anymore. Okay. Yeah, we had a 36 share every week. That's crazy. Yeah. How long were you on the air with the show? Four and a half years. You know, nowadays, if you talk to younger people, they don't understand that there were three networks back then and they had exactly. 95% of the market. Exactly. Okay, now, you know, probably those three networks have 10% between them all. I got one that's really going to shock you because you know numbers and you know theater and you know television. We were canceled with a 35 share. <laughs> now ask me why. All right, for anybody listening, that's insane. Okay, insane, that's totally right? insane. Right. Now ask me why. Why? Like why they can? Why? All right. Tell me why. Tell me why. Okay. So a new president comes into CBS. Fred Silverman leaves. My buddy goes to ABC. Right. What goes on ABC that he promotes a show called Happy Days. Right. So the new president says, "We know somebody who can fight that demographic." Okay, we're going to put Tony Orlando and Dawn on against Happy Days. Well, you know as well as I that prior to that, no television show had ever, ever, ever received those ratings like that of Happy Days. So we went from a 36-year 
through a bad 34 share because of happy days. And what did they do? They took us off the air and they put on a news show like 60 Minutes, which got a 14 share, which put happy days into the 70 share category, to be honest with you. Isn't that a crazy story? Wow. That is a crazy story. Yeah. I mean, totally crazy. But you know, you hear that it, some of the, the stories you hear about television. I remember there's a story about Seinfeld that Seinfeld took, I don't know, something like three or four years to develop their audience. Nowadays, if they don't do it within three or four episodes, they take them off the air. Yeah. Well, we were lucky. What happened to us is we came on as an experiment summertime. Freddie Silverman put on the Hudson Brothers in August, Bobby Gentry in June, and us in July or August. I'm sorry, I can't remember. And the ones who got the highest ratings of those three months was our group. So he put us on in January of 74. And we never, it never left. The ratings stayed at 34, 35, 36, 37 share. You know, it's crazy. I know. Because those are worlds, that's like World Series numbers or Academy Award numbers. Yeah, you know. yeah, totally. So I'm curious, what happened or where are the girls from Dawn now? Well, Telma Hopkins is the longest running sitcom actress in television history to this day. So I'll repeat that to you because you look shocked. Telma Hopkins of Dawn is the longest running sitcom actress now that Betty is gone in history right now, wow. right now. So she comes on a show with me in 1973. She was the one that was a little sassy with me all the time. If you watch the show, right. I she was the so I had the devil on one shoulder, which was Telma, and the angel on the other, which was Joyce. And by the way, that was the concept of writing the comedy. Angel, devil, angel, devil. Okay. So 1978, we break up. Okay. 1978, she does Roots. She goes from Roots to Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks. She goes for the full run of that, three or four years. She goes from there to Give Me a Break with Nell Carter. That was five years. She goes from there to Family Matters as Aunt Rachel with Urkel for 16 years. Okay. She goes from there to Half and Half on TV, five-year run. Okay. She goes three years with a show called Are We There Yet? Okay. She now is in... Uh, um, Matrix 4, the motion picture Matrix 4. And she, of course, done on Netflix all the reunions with Family Matters, right? And she's on a children's show, Lab Rats. She's on Lab Rats on Disney. Okay? And also, my one of my daughter's favorite shows on Netflix was Dead to Me. She's on that. So, since 1973, to this very moment that we speak to each other, she has not been off the air. Telma Hopkins, an extraordinary actress, comedian actress, an extraordinary talent. Also the girl who said, shut your mouth to Isaac Hayes on Shaft. Also is the same girl who sang Heard It Through the Grapevine with Marvin Gaye. Also is the same girl who did all the Four Tops background records. And she became Dawn. All right. Joyce, a quiet one. She deserves the respect. She is on the road right now as a supreme. <laughs> this is like uh, reading the world book of, of entertainment, okay? You've got so many things in your mind and you're able to express them. 
just fantastic. So you've accomplished so much in the business, okay? Is there anything that you're most proud of out of everything that you've done? Yeah. Professionally, there's a social pride and then a professional pride. So socially, it's my work for 33 years, co-hosting the telethon with Jerry Lewis out of New York. I handled the New York and the national for 33 years. And of course, being the first multiracial group to ever do a primetime television show, that puts us into not quite as big as Jackie Robinson, because we were the first ever to have, now remember something, when we came on in 73, Robert, it was post All in the Family. Think of that. So one year before we went on the air, Petula Clark kissed Harry Belafonte, and it was, oh, my God, she kissed a black man. Holy mackerel. And we went on the air one year later. That was really gutsy of CBS to do that, to put us on. And I'm so proud that we hold that to this day. That we're the first, not only multiracial group, two black women, African-American women from Detroit, and a Greek Rican, half Greek, half Puerto Rican kid from Chelsea Hell's Kitchen in New York, in put, being put into those shoes and those responsibilities, and they were tough times to be in that in those shoes, and we accomplished it. And yes, it wasn't a compliment to us. You know how I look at it? It was a compliment to America, because America was ready to change. America was ready to say, "Hey, we ain't going down that that racial road anymore." We love you guys. And we went into everybody's living rooms of all colors, all nationalities, and stood tall. Fantastic. And I know that you're back on the radio. Like you told me before, you're on WABC after Cousin Brucie. How long have you been doing that? Do you see yourself continuing with that? Well, yeah, you know, it's an accident. So like so many things that we do, we back into, right? We back, I backed into doing that favor for my friend and had the hit records, right? I backed into it. Huh? I, I backed into the Brucey thing because I got a call from the owner of WABC, John Casamitidis, huh? who I've known for years, you know, being Greek, we, we, my Greek brother, right? So he calls me up one day and he says, hey, Tony, I was talking to Brucey. You know, we have Brucey on our station. I said, yeah, congratulations. I'm so happy for him. He goes, I asked Bruce if he got sick, who would I call to take his place? And Bruce said to John, Tony. I want Tony. If I ever got sick, you call Tony. So he said, based on that, we have two hours to fill at night. I mean, I don't know if you ever considered doing a radio show for two hours, but would you like to do it? I said, John, listen. Is it for you? Yeah. I don't care if it was one minute. Whatever it is, I do for you. And Cousin Bruce. So he goes, okay, so we do the show. My first guest on the show was Adam Sandler. My second guest was Lionel Richie. My third was Garth Brooks. I was already off and running, right? Already. I can imagine. And I didn't want to do a, I didn't want to do a, like a flip the records kind of a, uh, a deal. I, it's just not me to be a disc jockey. That's another art form I can't do. Just don't. 
That's a right. Bruce Morrow genius thing to do. Right. So I, what I do on my radio show is I do what I call audio documentaries. So I did four hours with Clive Davis. And the ratings went through the roof. I don't have to tell you how hard it is to get Clive Davis in four hours. Oh, yeah. And him talk about everybody he's discovered was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing, you know. So the show now is number one at its time slot in the biggest market in the country, New York City. And it's probably in the top seven of all platforms in New York City, that show. And it's like number five streaming worldwide. So I backed into a beautiful situation where I can do it from home. I never have to leave my house like you are right now. I do it and I do all the editing with my brother David. And we sit home, we do the show, we do the interviews, we edit it and out it goes. All right, listen, you've been successful at so many things. Anytime you want to do a podcast, give me a call, okay? We'll do it together. <laughs> I think it'd be fantastic. We have been speaking here with the one and only Tony Orlando. I can't tell you how much fun this has been to hear all your stories and the thank history you, of rock and roll. It's just been amazing. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you. It's been an honor to be part of your, your show. I love the title of your show. It's what inspires us all. Thank you for keeping my dream alive. I appreciate it. Well, I thank you again. And uh, we're now going to play the song that started off underneath the introduction. And as I said, we're going to play it at the end. It's my song called New York City Groove. I want to thank you so much for listening. And we will see you all in the next episode. Take care now. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Puts me right.